The way I'm going to approach this is by telling my story in seven chapters of my life, beginning when I was a child and then going through high school, college, seminary, Germany, Bethel, Bethlehem. That's my plan. My uh, hope is that this approach will enable you to decide whether I'm a scholar or not and whether it's a good thing or not, whether you should be or not, because I wasn't sure when I got the assignment whether I was one. Still not sure, because I'm not sure what the definitions being used are. So I thought the safest thing to do that would probably be most helpful to most people, uh, even non-pastors, would be to tell my story and how I got where I am at age 63 at Bethlehem Baptist Church, where I've been for 29 years. It's a typically American approach, what I'm about to do. Uh, We Americans in general love to bear our souls more than other cultures do. F.F. Bruce, in his autobiography, wrote this, which I was uh, appalled by when I read it. While some uh, readers have observed that in these chapters I have said little about my domestic life, others have wondered why I have been so reticent about my religious experience. The reason is probably the same in both instances. I do not care to speak much, especially in public, about the things that matter to me most. Others do not share this inhibition and have enriched their fellows by relating the inner story of the Lord's dealings with them. One thinks of Augustine's confessions and Bunyan's grace abounding, but it calls for quite exceptional qualities to be able to do this kind of thing without self-consciousness or self-deception. So you can see how he's trapped me. My first reaction when I, when I read this years ago, I read it in 1980, the year that I, I became, that's the year the book came out and that's the year I became a pastor. When I read this, I thought to myself, no wonder I have not liked his commentaries. <laughs> Helpful in many ways, but personally and theologically anemic in my judgment. Uh, my, my second reaction was, good grief, you say... I do not care to speak much, especially in public, about the things that mean most to me. I say, that's all I care about. I don't get it. So you can see right off the bat, I don't have a good taste for scholarship in my, in my mouth, if that's what it, it signifies. Now, his statement uh, and mine are probably both overstatements, okay? All right. That's an overstatement, here's an overstatement, but it does point to the difference between me and the way I'm wired and the way most scholars are wired. Um, Most scholars, it seems, in the doing of their work, the writing of their books, the giving of their lectures, seem um, disinterested, dispassionate composed, detached, unemotional. Um, That's the scholarly way, especially in Britain, Germany. Uh, Less so here, but pretty much here, I think. Whereas for me, I'm regularly bursting with something to say from my devotions in the morning or what I've read, and I have total interest, warm passion, uh, if necessary, discomposure, and utter attachment, and full emotional engagement, and I hope what I say is true. 
I am fully on board with Jonathan Edwards when he writes this. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of the truth that I speak. And I assume for me and him that when he says, I consider it my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, he's not trying to do something that he hasn't sought for himself. So I have zero empathy with F.F. Bruce and others when they say that either for personality reasons or scholarly objectivity reasons, quote, I do not care to speak much, especially in public, about the things that mean most to me. I regard that as deadly. I think it hurts the church and the cause of the gospel if that's the way we portray scholarship. Now, I said he trapped me uh, because he said this. Others do not share this inhibition, like John Piper. Others do not share this inhibition and have enriched their fellows by relating the inner story of the Lord's dealings with them like Augustine (laughs) and Bunyan. So I've got to be an Augustine or a Bunyan in order to be profitable to the church in taking this approach. It calls for quite exceptional qualities to be able to do this kind of thing without self-consciousness or self-deception. So I'm just stuck. I mean, I'm an absolutely proud, arrogant, American, bear-it-all person to take this approach. And the only reason I feel somewhat justified in doing it is that this is the way Paul did it. Over and over again. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, and that was to make us rely upon God and not ourselves. Or, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have, seen my fa- have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged and on and on and on. The illustrations would go about how how Paul's just laying his soul bare and what God's hammering him with in order that the people that he writes to might take heart and learn some lessons from what what God does to apostles and and pastors and scholars. So the, the reason for my approach is that I am making a huge assumption. Namely that those who invited me to come thought I am one of these people. Where is it? There it is. Pastor as scholar. I assume somebody thinks I'm in that category. Now, I don't know if that's the case. And so what I thought would be helpful to do is to tell my story, how I got here, what I think I'm doing, and then you just decide if that's uh, scholarship or pastorate or both or helpful or unhelpful. Chapter number one of my life from early youth. When I was six years old in a motel in Florida, on vacation with my family, I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior 
and received the forgiveness of sins and was clothed forever with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My father was an evangelist who traveled all the time and was home maybe a fourth of our life together. I loved and admired him and my mother tremendously. Um, My father's influence on my life was huge. I admired him as a preacher, but knew I would never be one. Because from about the sixth grade till about age 21, could not speak in front of a group. The anxiety factor was pathological, perhaps. My mother took me to a psychologist back in the days when there was no such thing as a Christian psychologist. And, and she blamed it on my mother, and I swore I'd never go back to her because my mother was the only person who understood me on the planet when it came to this issue. There was a physiological paralysis. It was not your funny, oh, you get butterflies, and oh, your knees wobble, and oh, your hands shake. It was way beyond that, and it was not possible. So you have to understand, when people ask this little boy from seventh grade on, are you going to be a black preacher like your dad? I'd say, no. It was not even an option. Moreover, there was no vision for scholarship in my, in my home. There was neither anti-scholarship nor pro-scholarship. It was not a category. My, my dad had a library, and he studied, and it never even entered my mind even to think in those categories. So my father was not that kind of stimulus for me, at least perceptibly, in my own, in my, on my own mind, self-consciously, that he was that kind of a, of a person. Nevertheless, I loved Jesus, and I hated sin, and I feared God, And I took heaven and hell real seriously, and I love the gospel, and have lots of red notes in the Bible that my parents gave me when I was 15 years old, and and the dominant realities in my life were biblical realities, and those are all seeds of ministry. Chapter number two, high school, hugely important. In fact, things get more important almost as they go along, and I'm just amazed at how how important these things were. So, if there are any young people that young here, uh, listen up. In, in high school, there was a double awakening, an intellectual awakening, an emotional, expressive awakening. On the intellectual side, there was Mrs. Clanton in the advanced biology class, and on the emotional, expressive side, there was the um, English class in the 11th grade. I can remember it was the time that John F. Kennedy was shot, because I can remember where I was sitting, and, and the class that was happening, and the loudspeaker, and so on. Geometry and biology proved enormously important in shaping me. This may sound insignificant to you. The process of reasoning from axioms to postulates and corollaries so that theorems become proofs was mind-bogglingly interesting and riveting for me. It was an intellectual awakening. It was like doing with, with math Sherlock Holmes. And that shifted over into Greek and other areas. I just loved reasoning rightly from premises to conclusions. And from that day to this, I hope, right thinking, drawing right conclusions from right premises has been what I've tried to do. I have an eye for non-sequiturs. 
in the news and in, in politicians and preachers so that anybody who, who on the radio or in writing says, all cows have four legs, Fido has four legs, therefore Fido's a cow, I'm on it. And I want my children to be on it. I want you to be on it. Because if you get that and that's wired into you, it'll spare you a thousand confusions, misleadings. Then there was Ms. Clanton's biology class. We dissected worms and frogs and a fetal pig. And we bred tsetse flies and watched what became of them. And many of you have heard the story of Agassiz's fish, which is a common story about a naturalist who made a man sit in front of a fish and stare at it for a week in order to see all that was there. That's what Mrs. Clanton's biology class was for me. Look at this pig. Look at this worm. Look at this frog. Watch those flies. Tell me what you see and get it right. Therefore, you had geometry creating a passion for right reasoning and you had biology creating a passion for right observation because if you try to do right reasoning from wrong observation, it doesn't matter how good your reasoning is, it's going to go haywire. These are huge things. This is the basis of all right Dealing with reality so that you can come from there to truth and knowledge. It was no surprise to me, therefore, when I got to seminary and Agassiz's fish was a text in hermeneutics. And it was no surprise to me to go to Germany and read in the introduction to Adolf Schlatter's 1 Corinthians commentary, Die Wissenschaft ist erstens Beobachtung, zweitens Beobachtung und drittens Beobachtung. The science slash scholarship is first observation, second observation, third observation. And he was saying that over against Formgeschichte, Redaktionsgeschichte, Sachkritik. He said, just see what's there. We haven't even begun to see what's there in the text. Everything in me thought, right, because I had spent three years learning how to see what's there, and was sitting in classes in Germany, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, and watching these front-line, world-class scholars miss it. Because they weren't listening to Schlatter or the teachers that I had at Fuller Seminary. But that, um, okay, put that off for another few minutes. That's coming later. There were a couple of other awakenings in high school. One, a passion to write, And two, a bent towards poetry. My father wrote poetry. He he wrote for special occasions. He read poetry to the family. And they were simple. And I just absorbed that. But it didn't flower until the class in the 11th grade where the teacher had us writing all the time. And so my, my desire to write flourished And from 11th grade on, I would date a writing awakening in the 11th grade. I would dare say that almost every day of my life since then, that's probably an exaggeration, especially in the early days, but now it would be true. Every day of my life since then, I've written notes, journals, blog posts, uh, sermons, essays, talks like this. This is is a manuscript. It's a full manuscript. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do notes. 
So this, this will be on the web in the next 30 minutes, and so you don't need to take notes now. You just write down text questions. And so the, the significance of writing is that writing became the lever of my thinking. My brain is very finite and very inadequate to do thinking without writing. I cannot sustain a sequence of thought more than 30 seconds or so without writing. Because I start to get to the conclusion out here, or the multiple conclusions, and I've lost the premises. I just, I cannot hold it in my head. I've got to have it on the screen or, or on paper. So it's a lever, and without writing, my mind is just jerking and squeaking and halting all over the place. But give me a pen or a keyboard, and it starts to make sense and flow, and I can think. So that's the function of, of writing for me. I, as Calvin said, I learn as I write, and I write as I learn, and that's really basic for me. So writing is is desperation. I want to think clearly. I can't think clearly without writing, and therefore I I write. It also functions as a way of feeling and expressing feeling. Once you're an adolescent and you start to have, like this happens, 14, 15, 16 years old, and you're starting to feel stuff big, deep, and you don't know, how. what do you do with it? Well, writing poetry would be one thing you do with it. Writing essays, just writing, because it comes out, and then you find you find ways to write things that stir and shock and awaken, and that's called poetry. Whether it's lines, whether it rhymes, it's just poetry for me is a way of putting words together that awaken things in people they wouldn't that wouldn't have been awakened had you written it another way. That's a real broad definition of poetry. And the line between that and preaching is very uh, difficult to discern. The last two things to say about high school is that the inability to speak in front of a group cut me off in many ways. Cut me off from all class offices. Oh, come on, John. Run for vice president. Run for president. (laughs) Not in a thousand years. You've got to give a speech. So never ran for any class office, never gave any speech. I took C's in civics because I couldn't do an oral book report. John, if you don't do this oral book report, we don't give you a C in this class. That's a done deal. I mean, I will get a C. <laughs> you don't understand, Mr. Vermillion. This is not like I'm scared. This is not a possibility. So that was my life all through high school. And now you can imagine trying to envision your future with this. What would you do? I'd be a veterinarian. I can talk to my dog. <laughs> Best friend I had. Thought about that for a while. And one more I haven't mentioned. I read and read no faster than I can talk. That's a disability. Okay? There's a dyslexic component to it. And you just need to know you're dealing with an unbelievably unequipped, unscholarly brain here. I cannot read any faster than I can talk. And in those days, I could not speak in front of a group. With those two disabilities, what can you do? That was my high school days. Let's go to Wheaton College. It gets more powerful all the time. God's going to step in in significant ways. The season at Wheaton College 
was enormously influential. Sometimes I come to tears thinking about God's mercies to me in each stage of my life along the way here. Fanning the flames of the intellectual stimulation of the biology and the geometry awakening and and fanning the, the flames of the emotional deepening and the passion to write. All that was just fanned at Wheaton College in my college days. Here's, here's a way to... From, I don't know what to think about this yet. I just can name it. College and seminary, Fuller Seminary, relate as form and substance for me. I, it's not that way for a lot of people. Meaning... I'll, I'll describe what I mean by forms began to take shape. Methodology, ways of seeing the world, ways experiencing were just exploding with significance in college. And God and the Bible were, were not the main focus. So I came out of college needing a big object to feel about and write about and think about. And, and I got it, big time. But I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Let's stay with Wheaton for a minute. I can sum up Wheaton in mind, heart, synthesis, bridge to ministry. Here we go. Mind. Arthur Holmes, Stuart Hackett, two philosophers in the philosophy department, massively influential. Holmes in, embodied uh, the quest for a comprehensive worldview. I've never heard that, that, that language, comprehensive worldview, uh, with Christ at the center, he was that. I couldn't believe one day when I saw him cutting his grass. I thought, a philosopher cuts his own grass. Unbelievable. <laughs> Worldview and grass cutting, I just couldn't fathom it. I held these guys up on such a huge pedestal. The life of the mind as a possible vocation. <laughs> Never thought such a thing. And, and Arthur Holmes embodied it. Think for a living. And teach others to do that and, and write a little bit about it. Really? You could, I don't believe... I'm, I mean, they didn't say that in South Carolina. <laughs> Stuart Hackett. I am tempted to put Stuart Hackett at the top of the influential list. And I had two courses from him. He was a philosopher... And he did not influence me because of what he thought, but the way he thought. Every day, in every class, he had only one thing to say. Any system of thought that denies truth denies itself. That's all he had to teach. That is one of the most gloriously life-saving discoveries that a 19-year-old can make. It will save you a thousand errors to learn that the law of non-contradiction is universally applicable for wonderfully rescuing, saving reasons. If you say there's no truth, you have just spoken something that doesn't count. Just to, I mean, you didn't teach me that in high school. But I sat there day after day after day, and he just drove it home. And you cannot believe how for 30 and 40 years it has saved me. So, if you, have, if you don't know something simple like that, get it now. If you're into any enamorment with postmodern denial of the truth, 
you are denying the significance of what you just thought. And if you want to live there, that's foolish. That's foolish, which is why there was so much absurdity in the late 60s. Because postmodernism is not new. It just has a new name. Francis Schaeffer showed up in the fall of 1965 and blew us all out of the water, not only because of his knickers and long hair, but be- and, and the fact that he couldn't pronounce the word reality, <laughs> but because he embodied the personal, evangelistic, and cultural application of Art Holmes and Stuart Hackett. Here was a man who was not living in a classroom. He was out there and he was writing about everything and talking about everything. And it made those of us feel like we're sitting in our classrooms being blown away by these philosophical worldviews. And here's a man who comes who's, who's saying, this is relevant to everything. These were heady days. These were unbelievably exciting, heady days. Then there were students. So Holmes, Hackett, Schaefer, and now the Mark Knowles and the Nat Hatches, these are my classmates, had a, an effect on me that was good and bad. Um, these guys, and there were, the, the campus was crawling with people like this, were brilliant, and they read 30 times faster than I do, and remembered what they wrote. Mark Knoll put a little sign on his, he was my RA, we were in the same class, he was my RA my senior year, he had a little sign outside his door that said, to love is to stop comparing. I thought, thank you, Mark, that's for me, and I'll try my best. <laughs> but frankly, you're intimidating. Uh, it just pushed on me my, my, my slowness, my lack of memory, my, in, my inability to be comprehensive, and you just need to know, I'm just driving home, you're not dealing with anybody special here because my, you don't know my grade point average at Wheaton? Back in those days, it was on a three-point scale, so I just fixed it for this four-point scale, 3.2. I was a B student. I wanted A so bad. I tried my best. I mean, I worked hard, and I couldn't get A's at Wheaton. So I read unbelievably slow. I can't remember what I read. I can't make A's at Wheaton, and I can't talk in front of a group. I mean, there's lots of possibilities, but I was so caught up with these head things that I didn't know where to go, didn't know where to turn. That's, that's mind at Wheaton, heart at Wheaton. Um, the intellectual springs that were bubbling up were producing another kind of river flowing uh, I love reading and I love writing ever since the 11th grade. And even though I'm slow, I read carefully. I feel what I read. When you, when you walk through an orchard, you see the fruit. If you fly, fly an orchard, you don't. This is my self-justification for reading slow. <laughs> <laughs> and I pick fruit and I pause and I eat it. I feel things when I eat it. And then I sit down and write a poem about it and, and, and I change so I'm, I, I'm okay with who I am, but in those days, it was horrible in many ways. So I took every poetry class Whedon offered, I think, and skipped 
every class on the novel. I was a lit major. I was a lit major. So you've got to have a certain number of hours. And I knew that if I took a novel class, they'd assign me six novels. And I could read a half of one, maybe, in, in the semester, given the pace I'd have to go. So I didn't take a single novel class. I hardly ever read novels. They take forever to read. I don't have time to read novels, although I've read one or two in recent decades. The emotions were running very, very deep. And Clyde Kilby was the main hero in the lit department in those days. Clyde Kilby wrote a book called Poetry and Life and captured what I felt. A passion for observation. This is my biology now, only now it's becoming words worthy and we murder to dissect. Ooh, just look at the worm. Just look at it. Enjoy the worm. Don't cut it. My scientific bent was going away. My romantic bent was being fanned into flame here in these classes. He came along and he said, just look, mental health is seeing and not taking things apart, but just enjoying them for what they are. One of his resolutions that I wrote down, I shall open my eyes. This is Clyde Kilby talking. I shall open my eyes and ears once every day. I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to um, ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis calls their divine magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence, end of quote. So when you're being helped like that to see what you've looked at all your life and not seen, it is revolutionary. Kibbe was a great influence in my life. He saw the world and spoke of the world in a way that nobody I had ever known. He was alive to wonder and I was, in those days, awakening to wonder. Instead of just looking, you look, you see through, you wonder. You just, are, you're amazed. You, he, he, I think he quoted uh, Chesterton, who said, we shouldn't be amazed that some people's nose are like this, and others are like this, and others are like this. We should be amazed that people have noses. It didn't have to be. It could have been like snouts, pigs. Just be amazed at ears. Ears are really weird. I was looking at somebody's ears last night thinking, if anybody called attention to their ears, everybody would think, those are weird ears. <laughs> I've got you all thinking about my ears. I don't think about my ears at all. At least I'm going to try to right now stop thinking about my ears. Noel Francis Henry shows up in June 6, 1966, and a young man is never the same again. I've been married to her for 40 years, and therefore, since we were married in December of 1968 and met in June of 1966, for two and a half years, two of those at Wheaton College, we were ready to go to bed together and couldn't. 
Wouldn't it be nice if we were married? That's, that's the... Hold each other close the whole night through. What's so great about that Beach Boys song is that it's so moral. There's so many things we can't do. Nobody would sing that today. So I felt totally moral singing that song. I want to sleep with you, and I can't. So this is huge. This is emotionally massive. And you just need to know, when when you're talking about the, the things that shape your life, I have never, never been the same person since Noelle came into my life. She is, without a doubt, after my parents, the most influential person in my life. Everything I do relates to my wife and did from the day I met her. I mean, we were talking marriage in three weeks. This was real quick falling in love. So Noel was just massive. It's no wonder why the Song of Solomon says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up love until it pleases. So I think we should have been married like January 67 but her father would not have it. So we submitted. The synthesis that brought this Wheaton experience together was C.S. Lewis. Everybody's got a C.S. Lewis story to tell. Mine's really big. Lewis became for me in my college days what Jonathan Edwards would become for me in my seminary days. There was a little white booklet, 30 pages, called C.S. Lewis colon romantic rationalist. Couldn't find it on Amazon, long out of print, I presume. When I read that title, romantic rationalist, everything in me said, yes, I want to read that, I want to know this man, because that's what I felt I was. Romantic rationalist, okay? Geometry and poetry. Or maybe pastor, scholar. He had a tremendous influence on me. He embodied the fact that rigorous, precise, penetrating logic is not contrary to deep, soul-stirring feeling. Vivid, lively, imagination, playful turns of phrase. He combined what almost everybody was saying, in my experience, are mutually exclusive. Rationalism, poetry. Cool logic, warm feeling. Disciplined prose, free imagination. He was shattering stereotypes for me, right and left. And he freed me to think hard, write poetry. Argue for the resurrection, compose a hymn to Christ. Smash an argument, hug a friend. Demand a definition, use a metaphor. He was just shattering all these these either-ors that the world seemed to be communicating to me couldn't be. And then, like Clyde Kilby, he was teaching me how to see. When you wake up in the morning before you get out of bed, feel the firmness of the mattress. Be amazed at it. Feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. Hear the ticking of the clock and the siren going by. And enjoy the sheer, his word, quiddity, the thisness of things. Become alive! Become alive! I remember in seminary, I'm jumping ahead, my best preaching professor said, never buy a book of illustrations. Just shut up and listen. And then he just stood silent for about a minute. 
And after the minute, he said, there, do you have your illustration? And we all kind of, no. And he looked at me and said, you did not hear the siren on Colorado Avenue. You did not hear it. Somebody at this very moment is either dying or seriously injured. And you don't feel anything. You don't even hear the siren. Man, I just, I mean, that, that, that's the kind of thing that was just taking hold of me in the late in the late 60s. It was coming from literature. It was coming from preaching professors. And of course, Lewis, you know, disabused us of chronological snobbery. That was his, his phrase. Newness, newness is no virtue. Oldness is no fault. Truth, beauty, goodness are not determined by when they exist. Nothing is inferior for being old. Nothing is valuable for being modern. This has freed me for the last 40 years from so much tyranny of the novel. It's just wonderful. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. All these gifts were coming together, synthesized in C.S. Lewis. The intellectual stimulation, the emotional deepening, the stirring of the imagination, the passion to write, all came together in C.S. Lewis and made me Amazed, made me wonder, made me thankful. Last piece of Wheaton, the, the bridge to ministry. This is where God shows up most unusually. I mentioned four planks in this bridge. Because at this stage, you know, in the middle, I'm, I'm not thinking seminary, I'm not thinking pastorate or ministry. I'm thinking, I don't know what I can do. Maybe a veterinarian, maybe a doctor, except my hands shook too much. I thought I'd kill somebody if I were a doctor because... You, you have to do a little bit of a residency in surgery, and I knew I, I could never do it. My, my sons, it's, it's physiological. I mean, something about us that, 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 you know, if he's pouring something, you can see his handshake. It's just, it's just the way we are. We can't, you could, so a doctor's not a piece of belief. That's why I thought veterinarian, because kill a dog is not that important. <laughs> and a cat, less so. <laughs> I, I knew that for you. Now I know what kind of audience I have, and I, I'm very disposed towards you. I like you. Sorry for cat lovers. My, I just, I got to say something on behalf of cat lovers. I've got a cat lover who works for me. Her name's Carol. And she said, John, Jesus is not the dog of Judah. That's a very good comeback. Jesus is cat. A big, a big cat. I think big cats are okay. But little cats, number, plank number one, momentous summer of 66, met Noel, chaplain Evan Welch comes up to me and says, John, we have summer school, would you be willing to give the invocation one day in summer school this summer? I was there studying chemistry thinking, okay, I'm going to try to become doctor or or veterinarian. So, would you give the invocation in summer school? The summer school in Wheaton in those days had about 500 folks. To this day, I cannot explain what happened. I just said, how long do you have to talk? And he said, 30 seconds? A minute? And I said, yes. I do not know why. And realized what an unbelievable thing I'd, I'd said. And I, I, can, I can remember myself walking back and forth on the front campus which you all can picture perhaps, back and forth on the front campus saying, God, I've never done this. I cannot do this in front of 30 people. But I promise you, 
This is the only vow I've ever made in my life in terms of psalms, psalm-type vows. I said, I promise you, I swear, as much as it's legitimate to do it, I said, I, I swear, if you get me through these 30 seconds without paralysis and shame, I will never turn down another opportunity to speak out of fear. That was the vow I made. And he did get me through. It's a big pulpit, as you know. And I was, I was holding on like this. And I could feel my, my, my muscles just shivering all over. And, and my voice happened. It, it didn't break. It didn't shake. And I think I've kept my vow these 43 years. I think. I might be kidding myself and refuse to do something out of fear one time, but I don't know. That was a breaking. That was a showing up of Almighty God in a way that was huge. Then I was sick with mononucleosis for three weeks in the hospital. John Harold Ockengay was speaking in chapel, giving, giving the uh, spiritual emphasis messages. And I'm lying there listening on WETN radio. And as I'm lying there wondering what I'm going to do with organic chemistry, I've just missed two weeks of this class. I cannot catch up. <clears throat> he preached in such a way that God came down and said, more or less, I want you to do that. Actually, the way I experienced it was, I want to do that with all my might. I, I want to know the Bible like that. I want to study the Bible like that. I want to handle the Bible like that. That's amazing. I've never heard anything like it. <clears throat> That's what I date my call to. My girlfriend of about, what, two months now shows up and I said, um, I think I'm going to go to seminary. Would you go? And she said, yes. John Stott confirmed with his little book, Men Made New, my joy in that kind of exposition. He did it again in Urbana 67 where he moved through Second uh, Timothy in five or six messages. I can't remember how many he did, maybe four. And, and uh, I saw missions, I saw exposition, and everything in me was just churning to go study the Bible as I came to the end of Wheaton. Close Wheaton chapter, number four, Fuller Seminary. Uh, when I went to Fuller, I was detached from the local church. I was immature, I was foolish, because I had not attached to a local church during college. Just circulating around, mainly went to Wheaton Bible Church in those days, Malcolm Cronk, and then... Mm, forget who followed him, um, but I was just looking for some good preaching and, and uh, no, no attachment. That's really stupid. I encourage you not to do that. So when I left Wheaton and went to seminary, I felt zero allegiance to the local church. Everybody was rebellious in those days, black armpits, bare feet, going to class. We're, you know, we're countercultural and cool and we don't need the local church. Maybe, it's got, maybe there's another plan. And that's the way I went. Then I got married three months later in December and knew that I had to grow up. Now, I got a wife and uh, we, we got to go to church if we're Christians, I think. And, and went to Lake Avenue Congregational Church where Ray Ortland Sr. was loving his people like I'd never seen a pastor through preaching love his people. Never seen anything like it. I, I just sat there with my mouth open as he enjoyed the ministry, and preached well and loved his people well. You could just feel him almost embracing his people. 
as he preached. And my whole world changed. I, I was there for three years. One church taught seventh grade boys, taught ninth grade boys, taught a Galilean Sunday school class, was in five small groups when I finished and went away in 1971. So my, my awakening to the church, I just praised God for Ray Ortland, Lake Avenue Church, that I fell in love with the local church, and it's never gone away, thank God. Fuller in those days was a heady place where I was seeing the agony and the ecstasy of the emergence of what was called in those days the new evangelicalism, which was trying so hard to break free from the anti-intellectualism of fundamentalism, the, the obscurantism, the, the cultural distance, and the uh, not being involved in the scholarly guilds. And these men were, were broken and paying with their lives for trying to recover an intellectual life for the Orthodox Evangelical Church. George Ladd, for example, was almost personally and professionally undone. I mean almost suicidal because of a book review written by Norman Perrin of his book, Jesus and the Kingdom, which I loved as a book. And Ladd felt like this liberal scholar from the University of Chicago had destroyed his book and destroyed his career. He did survive it, not emotionally well, the last, my part of his life, I think. And when his New Testament theology was published, maybe it's been a textbook, it's old now, but New Testament theology was published, it was stunningly successful and He ran down the hall as an old man, waving a $9,000 royalty check. I did it! I did it! It It was good and it was sad. You owe so much to this generation, that generation. The generation I sat under in seminary. Don Carson's 50 books wouldn't exist without that generation. The, the, the milieu in which there could be a Don Carson would not have existed without that amazing generation. Jeffrey Bromley, church history. Discipline personified. Translated all ten volumes of the Kittles in uh, New Testament, Dictionary of the New Testament. A lot of Karl Barth. Then there were the sophomoric younger teachers who beat up fundamentalism in every class and made me very mad because I knew my dad was one of them. And having a foot in that world because my dad lived there and having a foot in this new thing that I was enjoying so much, at at 22, 23 years old, I was looking at these guys and said, you don't have to talk like that. We owe them something too. You don't have to do this. Be this, but you don't have to debunk that. You can love that. You can say they had, their, they had a battle to fight too in the teens and 20s and they did the best they could. And Then there was Dan Fuller to whom I owe more than any other, other person on the planet, perhaps beside my dad for my theological and methodological orientation. Dan Fuller Nobody thought more rigorously than Dan Fuller. I took every course that he had. I took special courses. I created courses to be with Dan Fuller. 
Nobody was more riveted on the biblical text and exegetical method than Dan Fuller. We, we called it arcing. And that's what I used to preach my message on Tuesday night. To this day, it is the most fruitful methodology that I've ever known and is the key methodologically to everything I've ever seen in the Bible and brought out of the Bible. Nobody was more jealous to think an author's thoughts after him. That was the meaning of meaning. Nobody was more practically committed to the truth and the authority of Scripture. In spite of all the controversy, nobody communicated a greater sense of gravity about the ultimacy of what was at stake in the truth of the Bible. Nobody was more vulnerable to students' questions, meaning if you asked him a question and he didn't know the answer, he looked like he, he might lose sleep, and he did. He would stay up half a night. He would write an answer. He would bring it the next day, and he'd say, does this help? He was so unbelievably personally, intellectually engaged with us, we couldn't believe it. That, that he would stay three hours after a class. He would stay up late. He would, he would write to us. No email in those days. He would write and unbelievable. Nobody was more committed to showing that much reading does not make the essence of scholarship, but assiduous, detailed, meticulous, logical analysis of great texts can lift you into great minds, which gave me, as a slow reader, unbelievable hope that maybe, maybe I could crawl into the institutes Or maybe I could crawl up into Jonathan Edwards or just a few people very slowly and very analytically and arrive at a point where I could think their thoughts and know them. He just opened that possibility to me. I I took a summer course on hermeneutics with him one time in which we read three books all summer long. That's all we read. And we read them line by line and figured out how the sentences were connected and how the paragraphs and what worked and what didn't work. He taught me how to read. Oh, I thank God for those days. Nobody pierced to the essence of true scholarship the way Dan Fuller did in partnership with Mortimer Adler, how to read a book. He taught me that true scholarship, whatever our vocation was, to observe the subject matter accurately and thoroughly, to understand clearly what you've observed, to evaluate fairly what you've understood, to feel intensely what you've evaluated, to apply wisely what you now understand and feel, to express in speech and writing carefully, fairly, clearly, powerfully, that scholarship, whatever you call it. Oh, those were hopeful days for me. And then came the all-important insight, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He showed me that from the Bible. He showed me that from Jonathan Edwards. And then he introduced me to Edwards. Here's the way it happened. I was sitting in a class, one day, a hermeneutics class, about 80, 80 students in the class. They were mingled in among us, the students of the new school of psychology at Fuller Seminary. These uh, students in general didn't like being where they were. They didn't want to study these things as much as some of us did. And so one of them shot up his hand and said, I think you're being too rationalistic. I don't know what he was explaining. Rationalistic. And Fuller paused, and he said, why can't we be like Jonathan Edwards, who would be writing a devotional thought that would warm your grandmother's heart and break into a philosophical argument that would stump the minds of his day? Now, here I am sitting at the back, and he says that. All I know about Edwards is sinners in the hands of an angry God from high school literature text. And I'm saying, really? Really? Bang! After class, I'm off to the library. Like, Edward, what did he write? What did he write? And the, the first book I pull out is Essay on the Trinity. It was awesome. It's not long. It's only about 30 pages. 
awesome. Next book, End for Which God Created the World. Changed everything. The most influential book I've ever read outside the Bible. End for Which God Created the World. Then the freedom of the will. Sealed the deal on Calvinism. I mean, I was a fighting Arminian when I went to, to uh, Fuller Seminary. And, and texts from Paul and Jonathan Edwards and Ann Fuller and Jim Morgan and Paul Jewett and all these people just point me to the Bible. Point me to the Bible. Lay down your free will presuppositions and believe what's in the text. And God broke me in those days and put himself supreme over all things. So I left Fuller with a love for Reformed theology. A great God. Holy God. So the focus of romance and the focus of rational labor became in seminary the Word of God and the absolute sovereignty of God and His grace. That's what I meant by saying at Wheaton I was formed and in seminary I got substance with which the form could deal. The thinking form, the feeling form, the writing form now had a massive God to deal with. Just gloriously satisfying. I mean, trees and noses and grass and worms and sunrises are wonderful, but it was all preparation. So I don't begrudge you if you pass through a romantic phase where you're just blown away by sunrises and have little time for God. God's getting you ready for something. He's opening your eyes because all that's going somewhere. The heavens are telling the what? And that's why they're there. Stage number five. Doctoral studies at at Munich. This won't take too long to do these. Bang, bang. I'm at page 21 and I've only got 25 pages. We can go fast. Doctoral studies... University of Munich. I got to the end of Wheaton. I mean, I got to the end of the Fuller. I didn't know what to do with my life. I just loved the Bible. I had done some teaching. I thought maybe I could preach. I didn't think I would. And the, they said to me, uh, if you've got the energy, just go ahead and get one more degree, and then all the doors will be open. I said to my wife, have we got the energy? Like, you're going to have to support me. <laughs> Which she'd been doing for three years. I want to bow down and worship women like this. So she said Yes. Got on a plane and uh, got rejected at Princeton Seminary, so we went to Munich, Germany. Studied with Leonard Goppelt, and what I saw in Germany for three years was everything I did not want to be. It was tragic. World-class scholars. Everyone on the cutting edge in America was ooing and aahing over those names, and I sat in their classes watching them do exegetically untransferable things and being insubordinate with the Bible and teaching in ways that destroyed the church, emptied the church, and wondered, what is everybody so impressed about? So I wrote my dissertation on Jesus' love command. I worshipped in a little Baptist church that had life in it, I led a little discipleship study group every Friday night to keep myself in people's lives. I read Jonathan Edwards' two or three pages, Religious Affections, on Sunday night in a rocking chair. I saw up close from inside how the global king of biblical scholarship had no clothes on. Driven by the need for peer approval using technical jargon that only insiders understand and often conceals ambiguity, speculative focuses in 
Object and Methodology, Formgeschichte, Traditionsgeschichte, Redaktionsgeschichte, Sachkritik that gave rise to scholarly articles that begin with heavily laden Wahrscheinlichkeit and end up with out of, rabbit out of a hat, Sicherheit. How did this happen? How did you get from probability to certainty? Answer, the wand of the consensus. I was seeing these things that I've been taught by, by a geometry class. That won't work. Tenth grade beats that. Using linguistic skills to create vagueness and conceal superficiality. Not pressing a question for the meaning until it yields riches of theological truth. Not having the smell of heaven and hell about the work. Not seeming to care about lostness of people. Not letting exultation in the explanation. And therefore not able to see what you can't see without Exultation, because it is exultation. Thinking that you can do this kind of exegesis with objective distance from the text and without mingling faith in, not seeing the incoherence between the infinite value of the object and the study that is naturalistic to the core. The whole atmosphere seemed unplugged from the majesty of the object. I earned my doctorate. I left. I never went back. I received my degree in the mail, in a black tube in August of 1974. I opened the tube, pulled it out to make sure it was real. I put it back in the tube. It's in a bottom drawer. I never opened it again. I have not looked at it for 30 years. Bethel College. I'm married. I have a child. I need a job. I wrote to, uh, 30, I wrote to 30 uh, denominations and and churches, and, and one door opened. They needed a sabbatical replacement at Bethel uh, College, and uh, I, I was willing to go. I'd never been to Minnesota in my life, didn't know where Bethel was, knew nothing about it. They kept me for six years. I loved every minute of it, almost. Something began to change deeply after loving to teach book studies in Greek and New Testament. Uh, I, I flourished scholarly. I published my dissertation in the SNTS monograph series, which in those days was a big deal. I published in a few scholarly journals. I felt like, okay, I can do it. I can do it. If I just do it slow, if I read slow, if I pick a tiny little, little thing, then I can, I can, I can make a, a little teeny splash in the guild. Something changed profoundly inside of me. I became very restless. I didn't like grading papers anymore. I... Um, didn't like teaching the same kind of students over and over again. Same questions. 18 to 24 years old, mainly middle class, mainly blonde. <laughs> Such a tiny little slice of humanity. And everything in me began to say, when I hear preaching, I love it, I'd love to do that. And when I hear bad preaching, I'd say, we've got to do better than that. And was just, I just couldn't stop it. It just kept coming and coming and coming until I took a sabbatical from... May to December of 1979, and I wrote a book on the justification of God, which was an exposition of Romans 9. And while I'm working on the biggest, heaviest uh, supremacy of God text in the Bible, God said, I will be proclaimed and not simply analyzed. And I said, all right. So I finished it, wrote the book, went to my dean and said, I'm going to resign. I'm going to look for a church because I feel like I've just got 
to uh, see whether or not this word spoken, the whole counsel of God, can build a people from cradle to grave and make things happen. I need to see this. I want to preach. I knew what it would cost. It would cost no more summers free to read and write. It would cost administrative pressures, uncontrollable schedule, an audience who didn't care about any academic efforts. They wanted me to be there and love them. It would mean funerals, weddings, baptisms, counseling, hospital visitation, emergencies, conflict resolution, staff management. It would mean that the days of publishing in NTS and Theologus at Sightscliffe, they're over. They're just over. And they were over. I've never done it again. I've never written a scholarly article since I became a pastor. It would mean, that's why I wondered if you really want me to be here because I, I don't, I'm not a scholar in the sense that I, I do that anymore. I'm, I'm finished. I'm over and I, I don't have any desire to do it and I don't take any time to do it. I'm not on the cutting edge of any discipline at all. So I'm, I'm not a scholar in that, in that sense. If I tried, I would, I would kill myself because I, I read too slowly to do two things at one time like pastor and, and read that kind of stuff. So my passion to preach was all there and I went to Bethlehem Baptist Church and uh, this is my last page. Uh, June, June 1980, I accepted the call. It was 110 years old at the time. There were 300 older people there, no, no youth. And uh, what I did was try to preach with authentic passion, love people, give them the whole counsel of God from the inspired word, showing them in the text where it comes from so they wouldn't argue with me, argue with Paul, if you don't like what I said, or Jesus, or Peter, Matthew... Um, and I tried to structure them so that they would care for each other, and I tried to inspire them so that they would reach the loss. Real simple plan, and no, no big dreams about accomplishing anything except see what God would do with the Word of God. Um, the impulses from high school were all there. Wheaton were all there. I am a reader. I like to read. I don't read much. I don't read much at all. Somebody said this morning that you will read less books this year than Don will write. I said, Duh. You wouldn't believe how little I read. I mean, I would be embarrassed. I wouldn't be embarrassed. I would tell you. I can't remember. It's not, I mean, it's not like a number over 10. So I, I think like I could remember the number, but I, I forget. See, that's the problem too. This means that I'm a writer still. So I'm a writer, a feeler, a, a student, uh, and slow. And uh, uh, since, since I, p- I put things on manuscript like this, that means I have a lot of stuff. You know, after 29 years, there's a lot of stuff which means books happen pretty easily, right? Nowadays, with 22 staff, the church will give me a month off. And with a month off, I can take a stack of this book you're gonna, uh, that you saw up here, Finally Alive, just sermons, that's all it is. I mean, I try to work on them a little bit. I mean, almost everything I've written in the last 40 years is sermons, just a few exceptions, I mean, two or three exceptions. The N.T. Wright thing was an exception, uh, and the Counter Righteous in Christ, that's an exception. But those don't require broad reading. I mean, N.T. Wright has not written a lot on justification, just a little bit. So I read it like crazy. I'm going to read this. And I don't like it, so I wrote about it. <laughs> so I'm done in this sentence. And uh, I went eight minutes over. Apologize. Am I scholarly? Um, I try not at all to stay on the cutting edge of anything. I don't try. Not in biblical studies, not in theological studies. I'm way too slow for that. What scholarly would mean for me is that the greatest object of knowledge in the universe is God. 
And he has revealed himself in a book. And I should work with all my might and all my heart and all my soul and all my mind to know him through that book. And I think that's what every pastor should do.